Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to Everyday Theology, where we don't tell you what to believe or how to think, but discuss why people believe what they do and why it matters. On this journey, we will speak with artists, curators, influencers, and pastors. I'm Aaron Ross. And I'm Ben Gomez. Today on Everyday Theology, we get the pleasure to have a conversation um, with Carolyn Custis James. She is a, a writer and an author and a blogger and someone who is really on the forefront of helping uh, reframe the ideas of patriarchy and egalitarianism that we so desperately need in the church. Uh, so thank you so much, Carolyn, for being with us today. It's a pleasure. I also have the pleasure of having with me one of my colleagues, Melissa Archer. It's her first time on the podcast and very excited because Melissa is also very passionate about the subject and has been a huge help for me in, in rethinking things that I need to rethink. So Melissa, thanks as well for being with us. Thanks, Aaron. It's great to be here. Um, Carolyn, would you introduce yourself a little bit to our guests, let them know a little bit about you, uh, your background, where you're coming from, and why you've been so kind of on the forefront of this conversation? Yes. I would, when I um, opened one of my books, I said, sometimes when you're searching for answers, you get more than you bargained for. Um, <laughs> and I think for me... Um, you know, I'm a pastor's kid and I grew up on the Bible. I grew up in the church and, um, with a very confident sense of what the Bible was saying to me as a woman, uh, and believing the message that I received that I would find my highest calling as a woman in marriage and motherhood. And, in a lot of ways that um, led me not to take a lot of things seriously in my own life. Um, you know, you're sort of waiting for someone to come and make your life interesting and to be the story. And instead of having that happen when I graduated from college, I hit a 10-year stretch of singleness. And, mm. you know, I think... The idea of searching for answers means that at some point you got into a place where you had you had to ask questions. And, you know, all of the hard things that we experience in our different stories are opportunities to learn and grow. And I feel like those 10 years, as hard as they were, um, were pivotal in what I do now. Because I had to ask, you know, am I going to miss what God has created me for? Um, and, you know, for me, the question was never 
about women's ordination or women in ministry leadership. I was in a, you know, in a community, a, a Christian community where that was never an option. It was not under discussion. Mm, yeah. And um, even when I went to seminary, it it didn't come up. Um, but what did come up was what is God's message for me as a woman? And is it something I can miss? Is it something, as I looked around and saw other women's stories, is it something we can lose? Is it something we can have taken away from us? Is it something, you know, we can ruin? And um, so for me, the question wasn't so much about women in leadership. It was about all of us. Is the Bible's message big enough for all of us? Does it begin mm, and yeah. does it end when, you know, does it stretch out for the full extent of our stories? Uh, I went back to scripture, one to answer that question for myself. And what I found was, as I said, more than I bargained for. And it has been utterly earth-shaking for me and life-changing. And um, and I, I have spent the last 20 years trying to get that message out to other women. Uh, it, it doesn't matter if they, you know, where they land on the spectrum of the discussion about women in ministry, they are called to give everything to the service of our King and uh, women uh, are, are mobilizing in all sorts of different ways. They, uh, I have met with little girls in middle school who are reading my books and are just on fire I've, I've encountered mm, yeah. women, women in their 90s who are asking God what he wants them to do with the rest of their lives. <laughs> and, they're, and they're getting assignments. You know, it's just, but it's like, who who can we spare? And, you know, who's, who's going to say this far and no further? Um, so that has been the the core of my work and just going back to scripture and unpacking this bigger message that's been there all along. And what happened in the process is that I've, you know, I've done a lot of work. I mean, I'm, I'm my, the foundation of my work is Genesis one and two, because that's the only pre-fall information we have. Yeah. And so it's God vision casting and it matters. And every other text in scripture must come under the scrutiny of that text. And so, you know, I wasn't thinking about patriarchy. I was just thinking about how is God working in the lives of his daughters? And um, in my study of women in the Bible, I started encountering men that we've ignored or diminished uh, whose stories show the gospel transformation Mm. in a man's life. Men like Judah, Jacob's son number four, gets eclipsed Mm. by Joseph. And Barak gets diminished when we turn that 
story into gender warfare, <laughs> you know, who's yeah. leader and who's, who's weak. And, um, anyway, I just, I, these were stories, Joseph, who's, who's married to Mary, um, gets eclipsed by Jesus and, and Mary <laughs> and you know, Matthew gets eclipsed by Peter and James and John and Paul. And these are amazing stories. And I wanted to tell those stories. But when I started to look at that, um, at the same time in our own culture, things were surfacing. And, you know, the rise of women was creating problems for men, a threat to their masculinity. Um, one of the things that shocked me was that experts were saying that young men are being drawn to ISIS and other terrorist and radical groups because they're looking for a sense of meaning and purpose and belonging. And I'm thinking, where are we in this conversation? So anyway, I, you know, when I start to write a book, it always takes me somewhere I didn't expect. And when I started to write Maelstrom, I just wanted to tell those stories and the whole thing just turned into something entirely different. Um, but their stories are all there and they are transformative. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and I, and I know Melissa has a question that she is ready to ask about this issue because I think when it comes to the Bible and, and gender roles, there's been just a way of perceiving things. And so Melissa, not to steal your thunder, I want you to go ahead and ask that question that I know is a really important question. Sure. No, that's fine. And thank you so much for kind of sharing some of your, your background, Carolyn. Um, I too am a pastor's kid and, and, and grew up with very similar understandings. And so uh, not being single for 10 years, instead, I got married at 19 um, you know, and of course that was a long, long time ago, but, but still it was that idea that my fulfillment would be found in marriage, uh, and that even my ministry call would be fulfilled in marriage. And, and so some of those, those same ideas, um, you know, I experienced as, as I was, as I was growing up and, and I do want to ask you, um, about, uh, you, I listened to an interview today, actually, that you gave, and it was talking about some of your work on Esther, and you made such a great statement in that I, I wrote it down and then uh, also discovered in, in your book, Maelstrom, uh, as well. And, and the statement that you say is this, patriarchy is the backdrop of scripture, not the message. And so I'm wondering if you might be able to, you know, kind of define patriarch patriarchy for, you know, for the listeners, because it is a term that we, we use a lot um, and perhaps we don't un understand it all. And, and what you mean by that when you talk about it as a backdrop of scripture and not the message. Patriarchy, the meaning of the word patriarchy is father rule. But when you see the manifestations of this, it, 
is the rule of men over women, but also over other men. I mean, I, I, um, we don't see it in the Bible until the fall. Because before the fall, God creates male and female to rule and subdue creation together. The rule is outward and it's for the flourishing of all. And after the fall, that rule turns laterally. And now we have men ruling over women. And... The book of Genesis is just permeated with patriarchy, beginning with chapter three. And um, it, it creates a rivalry between brothers because one of the, one of the well, Walter, Walter Brueggemann calls it the linchpin of patriarchy is primogeniture. And that mm. is that in the Bible, Sons in the patri in the patriarchal world in the Bible and also today in intensely patriarchal cultures, the primacy of sons is um, def- definitive in the culture. Yes. One one um, Palestinian man whose wife gave birth to a daughter and then she couldn't get pregnant again was desperate, and he said and this was in the late 20th century, I am nothing in this village without a son. Wow. So, no, women in the Bible who are barren are not praying for daughters. Right. They're, they're, they're not praying for children. They're praying for sons. And it is a woman's responsibility under patriarchy to produce sons, to perpetuate the family for another generation. And under patriarchy. Women don't have voice or legal rights or Mm -hmm. um, agency to make their own decisions. Their identity and their value is gauged by their connections with men. You know, whether Mm. their father or their husband, but especially their sons, you measure a woman's value by counting her sons. So women who haven't given birth to sons are zeros. Wow. So it's, you know, it's horrible. I mean, in, in the New Testament, Elizabeth talks about her shame. That's what that is. Yes. And it also creates, you know, wars between brothers because, you know, you have Jacob and Esau, you have Ishmael and Isaac, you have, you know, all of Jacob's sons, you have Cain and Abel. You know, so it's it's not just that men have power over women; it's that they have power over each other. And yeah. I've said it. You know, patriarchy creates an, a, a massive network of power pyramids, and there's very little room at the top, and it's not a safe place to be. Um, but you know, the you have to have a, a well populated base. Um, and that's the story. It's a it's a complete um, disfiguring and dis- destroying of God's vision for humanity. And, yeah. And so, um, 
So when I say patriarchy is not the Bible's message, it's the backdrop to that message. If you use it as a hermeneutical tool, if you work to um, sort of free yourself from a Western American point of view and learn from people who live in patriarchal cultures, the stories of the Bible and the gospel message explode with power. And, um, you know, the, you look at something like Mary seated at the feet of Rabbi Jesus. That is a total yawner <laughs> in our culture. You know, right. I mean, here, here you are a professor. You know, <laughs> and, um, but if you took that story to Malala, to the girls in Afghanistan whose education is banned when they turn eight, who get acid thrown in their faces. Mm, yeah. Would would they love Jesus? <laughs> you know, it's just but if but if we if we and it, and we've done this, we look through a Western lens at the stories of the Bible. And so yes. we try to salvage pieces of patriarchy. But if you read the Bible with an understanding of patriarchy, then you can't get through the book of Genesis without patriarchy falling to pieces. Because repeatedly, God doesn't choose son number one. He chooses son number two. He chooses son number 11. (laughs) (laughs) All the way through, he's overthrowing the system. And because that's they're enmeshed in the patriarchal world, it's cause for murder and human trafficking. You know, Joseph's brother sell him, you know, get rid of him. You know, he's son number 11. He's the firstborn of wife number two. I mean, it's just all wrong what's happening. And it stirs up fierce jealousy among the brothers. We don't understand that in our culture. That's, that's so yeah. true. And we get, of course, stories uh, of women, you know, throughout, throughout scripture, granted, uh, not as many as we would like, but as, as you point out, those stories become important um, and I know whenever I get opportunities to, to preach, uh, I often like to preach from, you know, one of the stories about a woman in scripture, because I just don't think we hear their voices enough or are exposed enough to the stories that that we find. So the Esther and, and, and the Ruth and, you know, I love Martha in the New Testament and Elizabeth and, you know, just um, so many of, of, of these stories that I think are doing exactly what you're talking about, pushing back against that um, that patriarchal backdrop. And of course, Jesus extending such incredible incredible opportunities uh, to women um, is, is just an extraordinary thing. And uh, I don't know that we, we give that enough, um, enough play uh, in, in our churches. And I think it is really important that we bring, bring those types of things to bear. Yeah. Well, you know, a lot of women will say the story of Deborah, the story of Esther, Priscilla, or Junia had, you know, changed their views of themselves. Um, The one that changed everything for me was Ruth. 
And mm. Ruth is a zero. She's had 10 years of marriage without a pregnancy. She's a foreigner. In today's world, we would call her an Arab. And when she arrives in Bethlehem, we would call her an undocumented immigrant. So she drops hmm. She drops below zero. She ends up being a gleaner, which is like a scavenger. Right. And scholars have said in recent, in the more recent work, that she's the leader in the story. Mm-hmm. And her actions are changing the lives of Boaz and Naomi, but they are also significant in moving forward God's purposes for the world. And that's something she would never, ever know. And when I saw that, I, that was the end for me. I just, you know, I thought, what have I been thinking? And I, I really don't think the question of women, any question we're asking about women in leadership or women, you know, what, what opportunities should they take advantage of? I don't think that's a gender issue. I think it's a stewardship issue. And, you know, I've said it before, when I stand before Jesus, I'd rather be explaining why I did too much than why I did too little, you know? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it it becomes absurd, you know, to say this far and no further. You know, who who has the right to say that? And in the Bible, women... The fact that a woman sets foot on the pages of scripture and the focus zeroes in on her is radical. It should never have happened, especially some of the ones like Hagar, who's a slave (laughs) and ends up being thrown away. And Ruth, who's completely disqualified by everything in her demographics. And Esther, who is trafficked. You know, it, it, we go to the New Testament, you know, Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel begin with the stories of women, you know, that are, so anyway. Yeah. It's, it's almost as if, you know, like these stories are there and growing up, um, me growing up, you know, I, my, my, my dad is also a pastor. So I grew up in the church. Um, that like, even as a kid and especially as a male, I would hear stories of, you know, Ruth and Esther and children's church, of course. I mean, they, they typically are like taught more in children's church, I feel like, than they are actually in, you know, (laughs) church, uh, in general, but I would hear these stories and then I would have a kind of like the whiplash of, you know, women can't be pastors, women can't be leaders, women can't be these things. And that's when their stories stop being told. Mm. Um, and it's almost as if we read, I mean, it's very true what we do anyways, we read into the text, what we're already expecting to find. Right. And so since we're expecting to find the patriarchy that we kind of already live in that, of course, that's how it worked in the Bible, because that's just, that's just the way it is. And we stop allowing scripture to actually surprise us and to say, well, actually it's challenging that notion and pushing back on the way that we typically look at it. Um, but you said something that I thought was really fascinating. And, um, I kind of want to get your, your thoughts on this. 
when we do see scripture and we see scripture actually pushing back against this patriarchy, whether it's patriarchy of kind of males in terms of, you know, the second born going over the first born or 11th born or women who are the leaders and, 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 you know, a few texts, but more than I think we're imagining they're, they are in, um, you said something really interesting about kind of men who were that you in your research were joining, you know, ISIS or were feeling like they had kind of lost their way as men, so to speak, and their masculinity was being challenged. Yeah. Why do you think it is? And this is a kind of a twofold question. Why do you think it is for men that when this has been kind of like patriarchy is being dismantled to some degree in a healthy way that we see men responding in unhealthy ways such as that. And then the second fold is what about for women who push back against the dismantling of, of the patriarchy as well? Cause I know, you know, sometimes it'll be students. Sometimes I've seen it in certain denominations that women are not allowed to preach that the women will almost sometimes be the most vocal about women not being allowed to yeah, preach or women not right. being the leaders of the household. So maybe if you can help interplay both those and give your opinions on those, it'd be helpful. Yeah. I, you know, the, the problem with the, the masculinity manhood question is that we offer men a definition of masculinity that can be at, can be out of reach or is something in that you have to earn um, or you know that you know some men are not interested in in that definition and you know they it it's it's very fragile. And, mm. you know, with the ISIS, they, you know, they were saying you can go from o- overnight from being a nobody to being a headache to the most powerful leaders in the world. Mm. Huh. And, you know, so they become, they be, you know, they feel like they're real men. And, I believe the Bible offers us a definition of masculinity and femininity that is a birthright and that cannot be taken away from you, that you can um, violate it, you can ignore it, or you can live into it, but it's it's yours. Mm. You know, and that's... That's what I was looking for as a woman. Is there a definition of what it means to be a woman that nothing can take away from me, that I am born with, that it's not about walking down the aisle when I'm an adult. I'm born with that calling. And, um, and, And nobody can take it away from me. And, you know, if, if women are abused and, trafficked, the violation against them is all the more egregious because it violates their calling. And the calling that we all share is to be God's image bearers. And there is no higher calling, you know, than, you know, all this manhood stuff or the feminism stuff is, is, is a, is below that because we are called to know 
and reflect and represent our creator. And I do that as a woman and you do that as a man, you know, it's not, (laughs) but that's what I've seen in the stories of these women and men in the Bible is that you see a whole new way of being a man that is gospel, that is a reflection of the heart of God. And it's not about being, you know, David, the warrior who's out there, you know, leading fierce blood battles against other people and, you know, causing the death of Uriah. And it's it's not about muscles. <laughs> it's about... <laughs> about it's about the kingdom it's about the gospel and you know i found in the stories of these men an awakening to a masculinity that is that is that is looking out for others you know men have power and privilege and these men use their power and privilege they don't shed it. They use it to empower and bless others. Hmm. You know, it's, it's, it's a whole new way. We've lost it, you know, because like I said, the only pre-fall information we have is Genesis one and two. And I like, I talk about this in Maelstrom that there's a missing chapter in the Bible, it's between chapter two and three, where we mm. never get to, we never get to see what unfallen image image bearer looks like until we get to Jesus. Right. Yeah. So you know we're sort of feeling our way through the dark, and what we're doing is reaching for cultural definitions of what it means to be a man or what it means to be a woman, and and they lower the bar for all of us because we're called to to live sacrificially for the good of others. We're called to put the interests of others ahead of ourselves. Yeah. We're called to invest ourselves in, in God's purposes. And, you know, it, it calls us to a whole new way of being that that we're still feeling our way through, you know, that it's <laughs> But it's certainly not patriarchy and it's certainly not a gender war. It's, it's, right. you know, in Genesis 2, we learned that men need their sisters. God says it's not good for the man to be alone. And we, we reduce that to marriage, but it's a blanket statement. There are no parameters to that. And so for women to, strive to use all the gifts and um, opportunities and privileges that we have should be blessing our brothers, um, should be um, infusing strength and courage into them, not, you know, swinging a pendulum of power from one gender to the other. It's, you know, I think we've got more work to do to understand yeah. what this is. But- yeah, I, I, I definitely think we do. I, I think some of the, you know, the way that we 
um, often read scripture or how I often hear it talked about in, in, in some circles is we really read through Genesis three rather than reading through Genesis one and two, and, and particularly the, um, the, the talk about God creating male and female in his image. And as you said, tasking them with the same, uh, task of, of, of stewardship and, um, you know, there's no Adam, you do this and Eve, you do this. I know they're not named yet in Genesis one, but you know, there, there's no kind of differentiation of roles. They are kind of given the same purpose, but, but when we kind of ignore that and read through Genesis three, we are almost, um, giving patriarchy a divine sanction. And I don't think it was ever meant uh, to be that as you have said. And and I'm, I'm wondering, Carolyn, um, because I'm thinking through everything you're saying and it, and it's so, so good. And then I think of my own kind of, of, of tradition um, where uh, so much of the reason why women are denied ordination, which is a, a big issue in, in my denomination, um, it, it's put to scripture. So it is Paul's two injunctions in first Corinthians 11. Uh, I'm sorry, first Corinthians 14 and, and first Timothy two. Um, and so I, I'm, I'm curious how you uh, try to help people navigate through, you know, hermeneutically through texts that seem to be so strong um, in light of uh, some of these other things that you have been lifting up about the importance of, of being, um, you know, image bearers and mutual flourishing and all of those types of things. When these two texts often kind of trump all of that, what, what's kind of the way forward uh, from your perspective? Well, I would say two things. One is I think we are all ordained in Genesis 1 and 2. <laughs> and <laughs> You know, we are called, we are all called and we're called together. And, um, but, but the other thing is the, the way we look at Paul detaches him from his world. Paul, Paul and the other apostles responsibility was to take the gospel of Jesus into the first century and our responsibility is to take it into the 21st century. Yes. And people have this mental picture of Paul holding focus on the family marriage conferences with cute little couples <laughs> sitting around. But in the in the in the first century church, you had a majority of women. You had Marriages that involve two and three and four wives. You had marriages that involved believing believing women and unbelieving men. You had a situation where men had total power over their wives. They could divorce them and put them out on the street to fend for themselves. Um, you know, there there are situations where in cultures today where, you know, abuse of a wife, violence against a wife is totally expected and accepted. Mm. You know, so some of the injunctions that we're hearing in, you know, the advice that's being given to wives is um, to protect them. 
And, you know, the, the, um, the movement of wives from a culture like what you have in Pakistan and Afghanistan where women aren't educated and now they're being educated is, you know, earth shaking and destabilizing right. in the culture. And so the encouragement for women to learn is, is revolutionary. I mean, that's what I'm saying. If you look at the, if you look at the text through the lens of the culture, you know, nobody is hopping up and down and saying, you know, women are wearing pearls to church and, you know, <laughs> that's, that's a sin. Um, this is why as a hermeneutical tool, um, patriarchy is essential. And you cannot understand the Bible. We we do all kinds of gymnastics with the Bible when we just look at it from a Western point of view. And, you know, instead of unleashing the gifts and the power of the gospel in the church, we're cautioning and we're holding back. And yes. so it's you, if you're ordained officially, you have more important ministry to do than someone who's out at gleaning in the fields as an in, undocumented immigrant. Um, you know, I don't think we know where the most important things are taking place, but we underestimate God's spirit and what God is doing in the world when we limit it in any respect. So, you know, it's, it's, yeah, it's a big, it's a big deal. And I think there are some very explosive statements that get made in Genesis one and two, and that's God's vision. And that's what Jesus came to restore. Um, and no one can be, uh, we can't, we can't, afford to lose anyone in this mission. It's bigger than our little band of <laughs> believers. Right. You know, so it's just, I'm done with all of that. You know, I just think, stop it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we've got work to do. We've got work to do. Yeah. I definitely think that there's that problem with scripture that a lot of people have because they still hold to this, you know, perspicuity of scripture, like this kind of understanding, like, I don't need to know the culture. I don't need to know the context. If right. the Bible says it plainly, that's right. And the way that I see it must be plain. It must be because God wouldn't want to confuse us. So why would we need all that extra stuff <sighs> to help us understand his word? Yeah. As if God's word is so basic that it wouldn't demand deep study. Well, there's, I mean, there's so if you look at the story of Judah and Tamar through against the background of patriarchy, he becomes such a bad <laughs> dude. And, you know, because he's, he's trafficked his brother. He's, you know, driven by jealousy that's provoked by primogeniture, which we don't even think about. Um, and then you look at what happens to him when he collides with Tamar, who is not getting even. She's rescuing 
her dead husband from extinction by providing an heir to take his empty place on the family tree. And, And what happens to Judah when he is confronted with his his own wickedness, really. You know, I mean, who wants to execute her for a crime he's participated in? And yeah. he says, she is righteous, I am not. Mm. And we can hardly stomach that statement. You know, so we, so we, you know, nuance it to him saying she's, she's more righteous than I am. It's not what he's saying. And the transformation in him is the turning point in the in the book of Genesis. Hmm. It is the pivotal moment where the gospel takes hold of this man. And in in his meeting with his brother, Joseph. He is willing, before he knows it's Joseph, to lay down his life for Benjamin, who is now his father's favorite. Mm. It is Mm, such a gospel moment. I cannot read Judah's statement to Joseph without weeping. Mm. Uh, You know, I love this man. He, He gives us such a radical picture of the gospel's grip on a man and what it does to his soul. And we miss it. We totally miss it when we don't understand the patriarchal backdrop. Oh, that's, that's really good. It's, it's hard to like, it's hard to like process, you know, I I'm, I'm kind of the person that I'm like constantly thinking, okay, how is someone going to take this and just argue and, and I think it's because I'm constantly trying to like defend ideas, but I think with something like this, you know, there's such a beauty and truth in those stories oh, yeah. that they really reach into you in ways that, that no argument can. The gospel is supposed to transform us in such radical ways that the that the world will sit up and take note that Jesus has been here, you know, mm-hmm. and our little hanging on to control of leadership and patriarchy isn't doing that. Yeah. It's not doing that. And uh, we don't understand how radical the gospel is, but I have to tell you, these men in, in Maelstrom brought me to my knees and um, you know, the ones we focus on are Joseph and David and Joshua and, you know, and we miss the power of the, of the gospel in how it transforms lives and, um, brings a healing breath of fresh air into the lives of other people. And, you know, Boaz is another one, very powerful man. And he learns from this undocumented immigrant who looks at the law from the hungry side. (laughs) And it reads differently from there. You know, the law is is meant to help the poor and, you know, the powerless. And 
Um, and Boaz is, is following the letter of the law and she leads him to the spirit of the law. It's like, it's like the sermon on the Mount in the old Testament. It's just profound. I mean, he, it's so beautiful. And, you know, we look at him as Prince Charming and the guy who gets the girl and it's such a trashing of his story. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, I I will encourage absolutely everyone to go and pick up that book and to, uh, to go pick up Maelstrom and to be challenged by, I think the gospel as it renegotiates the way in which we engage with the, with each with each other in this kind of mm-hmm. image bear reality of being people in the image of God and what that means first, like you said, what that means first before gender, um, as as the primary place of what we're supposed to be as people. That was um, so very good. Thank you so much for that conversation. Before we let you go, though, is there any other kind of works or any other way that people can connect with you, with the work that you're doing, um, and keep up to date with uh, this really beautiful and necessary for our time work that you're doing? Yeah, I have several other books out, and um, I would hope you know, half the church and um, the gospel of Ruth and finding God in the margins that people would pick up those books. Um, You know, we've barely scratched the surface of um, (laughs) of what, you know, can be said about all of this. Um, The whole question of the woman as the Azer is, um, you know, one of the things I'm known for because it's, it's military language. It's very powerful um, in Genesis 2. But my website is carolyncustisjames.com. They can find me there and my books are there. And um, yeah, but anyway, thank you so much for the opportunity to, to talk about patriarchy and because it's so important to our understanding well, no, thank you for, for being with us. And, um, I hope that, you know, even through this podcast, we'll keep that conversation going and maybe we'll even have you back at some point to bring up some more of those important points, Mm -hmm. um, because it's such a necessary conversation. So thanks again for being with us, Melissa. Thank you for joining me this time. Thank Um, you, Aaron. It's been really beautiful for me and I hope our listeners really kind of grab something out of this, at least challenged to some degree to Mm -hmm. kind of push forward. So Thank you both.